This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Bank Secrecy Act is aimed at curtailing financial crime. As a side effect, every American with a bank account has to give up a massive amount of financial privacy. So how well has that trade-off paid off? Cato's Nick Anthony says there's precious little evidence that Americans should have to hand over financial data to the feds in exchange for benefits that the government largely avoids quantifying. We spoke last week. We don't get any answers about what crimes it's stopping, and we don't get any reassurances that this privacy trade-off is actually one that's worthwhile. Myself and others have been asking for years, what exactly is the, the success rate of the reports that are filed as required by the Bank Secrecy Act? And just about every time, the government hasn't been able to give any answer. All right. So what what is the what are the agencies that are charged with enforcing the Bank Secrecy Act? What do they hang their hat on when it comes time for, you know, nosy little policy people like you uh, come snooping around and asking for answers? So primarily, this is falling under the, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network or FinCEN and We've asked a lot of times, what do you justify this under? And you'll get an anecdote. You'll get one case here or one case there. There's even a law enforcement awards program that they've created to highlight a dozen cases. And the big problem, though, is, okay, you gave me 12 cases, but there are 26 million reports filed each year. There needs to be more than 12 to prove that this is effective. And they really can't offer that. When really pushed on it, acting director Himamali Das has said things like, well, law enforcement tells us it's useful. They tell us that it's helpful. But that's really not good enough. Of course, they're going to say that having access to everyone's financial records is helpful. We need something more than that. So the, the trade-off as as near as we can tell because you would imagine if they had lots of cases that they could point to that they would then do that if they had you know hundreds of cases to say these are all the cases well here's all the information this is what the trial looked like here's all the information that we have that has been useful to preventing these financial crimes they would point to that if 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 they could so the trade-off appears to be and tell me if i'm wrong every american who is actively involved in the financial system, which is almost every American, gives up some privacy, and the security benefits are, eh, we got these 12 cases. I wish I could give you a better answer. That really is how it boils down, and it's it's wholly unacceptable. And it's even inspired some legislative changes where FinCEN is now required under law uh, as part of the, the Treasury Department to report on this effectiveness. But even then, it's been about two years and we really don't have any substantial answers. They came out with a report that kind of hinted at, at what they're doing, but it does not live up to the statute and it does not give any actual tangible answers. So in terms of what we do give up, we, we should quantify that because we know sort of what that is, right? 
which is reporting requirements for certain transactions that you and I might engage in that the the government can sort of freely look at what what is the what is the, what's the privacy cost unfortunately this is something that everyone is giving up like you said and i don't think most people realize just how invasive it is because financial privacy is something that gets really to the heart of who we are our financial activity reveals our profession our religion our relationships and so much more and it reveals it in a very effective way because we're incurring costs by spending our money so unlike on facebook where you might post that oh yeah i'm traveling abroad and and going all to all these lux- luxury resorts to try to get your friends to think that you have the coolest life well you might be able to bend the truth like that on facebook but with financial transactions you're incurring a cost for all of those types of statements or activity. So it's much more likely to be revealing of who you truly are. And it can get down to revealing your your commute to work, where you go on vacation, how you spend your leisure time, and so much more. And it's something that we don't really realize because it's a little bit hidden. If you're not looking at all your bank statements, you might not recognize that that's going on. And because it's confidential, this reporting, this reporting activity that a bank can't tell you that they reported your information to the government, you really don't realize that your privacy is being violated. What's a legal framework that allows this? I have my suspicion that, of course, it is our good friend, the third party doctrine. Yes, it, it, it really does boil down to the third party doctrine. And one thing I'll just add to that, though is that I'm sure listeners of the podcast recognize the third-party doctrine as this kind of exception to to privacy and that if you involve a third party in your affairs, that you no longer have this, this Fourth Amendment protection. But if we go a few years before when the third-party doctrine really rose to prominence through the Supreme Court, it was the Bank Secrecy Act in 1970 that really set things in motion to get the court case in U.S. v. Miller in, I believe it was 1976, that set the third-party doctrine. So it was really this entire reporting regime that not just started to infringe on our financial privacy, but also opened us up to this wider array of third-party doctrine-based surveillance, because that applies to everything from, from social media to regular courses of business, not just your financial transactions. So going forward, what what efforts are there to reform or reassert financial privacy on behalf of American bank account holders or users? Luckily, there are some efforts that have been pushed forward. Representative John Rose has put forth a bill to completely overhaul how the Bank Secrecy Act operates, and others have kind of tackled piecemeal options. For instance, Senator Mike Lee has put forth a bill that would fix the the lack of an inflation adjustment for the currency transaction reports that have been set at $10,000 since 1970. And there are still other options. One option I put forth in a recent policy analysis was the Right to Financial Privacy Act that 
this was a bill in the 70s that would have fixed many of these issues. The problem is it has a list of over 20 exceptions where it says, yes, you have a right to financial privacy. Your financial privacy should be protected under the Fourth Amendment unless any of these 20 things comes up. And with probably no surprise, the Bank Secrecy Act is one of those things that is included in the exceptions. So eliminating those exceptions, fixing things like the inflation adjustment, or overhauling the entire Bank Secrecy Act. There are many options on the table. It's just now there needs to be that push to actually get those done. If I were king for a day and just waving a wand in this one area to reform it, I would think that the reform that I would make is you have to inform people when their information is being transmitted to FinCEN. Yeah. And just, just that seems like a simple enough reform. You know, when it, when the police come to your door with a search warrant, they got to show it to you. Exactly. And it has to be signed off by a judge. Of course, a warrant is obviously just a bridge too far for the this this kind of surveillance. But and I'm joking. But the if I were to, if I were the you know in charge for a day, I think that would be a reform that I would make. Well, that was that was one of the things that was in the Right to Financial Privacy Act. Is you need to be notified. You need to be given a heads up that this is what's going on. And I think you're absolutely right that that is a very key part part of it because if people knew if there were 26 million notices that accompanied these reports last year we'd be at, having a very different conversation if everyone was aware of what's going on and i i know you joked that that a warrant is a bridge too far but i do want to point out sadly that's the argument that a lot of people have made to say that we need this regime because getting a warrant is is too hard or it takes too long. Those are things that that law enforcement lobbying groups and, and industry, industry reps have made time and time again. And to that, I just say that the Constitution exists for a reason. It's to make these things hard. It's to constrain the powers of government to protect citizens. And yes, it's hard. Yes, it takes a long time, but that's for a reason, and that's to protect everyone's rights. Nick Anthony is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.